Listening Dog Media. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Can I do, yeah, just check two things, um, Colleen. Uh, do you prefer Colleen or Cosmo? Uh, people really call me Colleen more now rather than Cosmo. Yeah. Oh, I like Cosmo. But you can, you can uh, okay. call me Cosmo as well. It's, it's, it's kind Thank of interchangeable. You. <laughs> <laughs> okay. uh, but as long as you refer a few times to Colleen Cosmo Murphy, because otherwise people yeah. won't know where to find me. Because the, the problem is, is there's other DJ Cosmos out there. Yeah, and then people are, start yeah. searching and then they find those cosmos. They find the <laughs> shit ones. Exactly. How to DJ. How to DJ. DJ. How to DJ. It's really important for music fans to be behind the mic. Hello, I'm Chris Hawkins and this is How to DJ. Learn to count to four and have good taste. There you go. <laughs> if you weren't a DJ, what would you be? Uh, not very happy. How to DJ podcast that explores the life stories, techniques, minds and experiences of much-loved DJs, where I asked them to pick five questions from a box of 45. I really kind of loved how both of my passions of indie rock and dance music were really fusing together in such an interesting way here in the UK. And here with me, a DJ from New York City. It was a creative playground. It was incredible. A tastemaker, selector and remixer. I really am very careful with what I say yes to. The creator of Classic Album Sundays. It's kind of like writing a novel and somebody only reading one chapter. And now Worldwide FM host. I can even feel a radio audience when I'm hosting a live radio show. I think you start with the instinct. Some people have a talent for communicating and expressing themselves through music. There's like no ego and it's completely organic. I would be DJing at a party and a woman would come up to me and said, I never even considered being a DJ. Wow, you've just inspired me. It's Colleen Cosmo Murphy. Hi, Colleen. Hi, Chris. How are you? I'm very good. Before we head into the big box of questions, Colleen, you were brought up in Massachusetts and went to New York University. What did you study there? I actually studied radio and sound, and then I took on a second major, believe it or not, of comparative religions. (laughs) Wow, two very different worlds. Very different, very different. But I got drawn into the whole comparative religions thing by a class in mysticism, and I also started studying a lot of the Eastern religions. So it's just kind of more of a spiritual quest and not necessarily following an organized religion, but also kind of looking at it from an anthropological point of view. And at one point, my intention was to then go for a master's in anthropology, then a PhD in musicology. So it was all kind of tying together in a certain sort of way. Kind of. How was being a student in New York? Oh my gosh, it was amazing. I moved to New York in 1986. I was living basically in Greenwich Village in the East Village which was still pretty much intact in terms of being a place where bohemians and hippies and immigrants and still then low, low rents. It was a creative playground. It was incredible. I moved from a very small New England town and New York City just opened up so many different opportunities and possibilities of how to lead your life and who you can be. 
Where were you uh, doing your clubbing and hanging out? I was mainly going to live shows at that time because I was really involved in indie music. So I was actually DJing at CBGB's Record Canteen uh, with the radio station WNYU, where I was program director and hosted a bunch of radio shows. I went to the Ritz all the time when it was downtown. I would go to the Pyramid Club. I kind of went all over and I didn't really start going to dance clubs really into the late 80s, but more in the early 90s. And who were you hanging out with back then? I was hanging out with a lot of my university friends in the 80s, but also the radio station staff because they were like family. I mean, I practically lived at the radio station. Sometimes people would come in the next morning and I'd be sprawled out in the lounge having stayed overnight there. I used to do a lot of the editing and work that I needed to do. I used to edit like quarter inch tape and create my own radio shows and uh, different kind of promotional spots on tape. And I would go into the studios overnight when no one was using them. But I would also go there just so I could blast music if I really needed to, if it was one of those types (laughs) of nights. Uh, Because, you know, I had roommates, so I couldn't blast music, you know, at wherever my home was at the time. But uh, yeah, I hung out a lot with people from the radio station. And then my friend Adam Goldstone, who was a good friend of mine who I'd met at NYU, started bringing me to different clubs. He was a real club hound, a night owl, really, and later became club's editor of Time Out. And he would bring me to clubs like Payday and Tracks. And he was also the one that brought me to David Mancuso's party, The Loft, for the first time. And by this time, were you starting to figure out that this could be a career, something in music, maybe in radio? I always had a musical vocation. I started in music, gosh, I started on the radio when I was 14 for our 10-watt high school radio station. The reason I chose NYU is because they had one of the best college radio stations in the country, WNYU. Uh, That's why it shows NYU and also because it was located in New York City. And then by the late 80s, I was actually living in Japan as a radio DJ as well. So radio was already a big part of my life. And my first kind of proper after school job was working in a record shop. And then I was writing for Rockpool magazine, doing record reviews in the 1980s. So kind of all of the activity I had done up through until I graduated from university were in the fields of radio and music. So it was really no surprise that that's where I ended up. It's not like I necessarily intended to have a career in music. It's just kind of what happened out of my passion. And it seemed like the more that I kind of did, the more opportunities presented themselves. At one point, as I said, I thought I would go back to school. I actually took the entrance exams and I got accepted to Columbia University for a master's degree in anthropology. But I was producing syndicated radio shows at that time. I was interviewing all of my favorite bands and acts like Brian Eno, Richie Sakamoto and Nirvana, uh, all these great bands for this radio show that I was producing and hosting that was syndicated throughout the United States. So I thought, gee, you know, I kind of really like my life as it is. And I'd rather be on the inside making culture and partaking in culture rather than being on the outside, just observing it in an academic way. So, yeah, just one opportunity kind of led me to another. And and here I am. Were your parents in radio or music? No, my parents weren't really hugely into music, strangely. We listened to music basically in the car all the time. And they didn't really have many records. We had an eight-track player. 
they liked soundtracks, but they weren't massive music fans. My dad, though, did encourage me to take organ lessons. You know, he was into singing himself, actually, just in a, you know, not not in a professional or even amateur kind of way, but he had a very good voice. And I think he wanted to give me the opportunities he didn't get. He was the eldest of six children, and he wanted to ensure that I had a musical education. So he encouraged me to take organ lessons, and he also gave me my first turntable. I had aunts and uncles that lived in the same hometown. They were teenagers when I was growing up. And they were the ones that kind of led me to certain albums. I would raid their record collections once I got this turntable. And that's where I discovered quite a bit of music. But really, the source of discovery for me was the radio. Because growing up outside Boston, we had access to loads of college radio stations. Boston, Massachusetts has the most universities out of any other city in the United States. Plus, we had some great AOR stations, commercial stations, one being WBCN and the other one being KISS 108. So they were a bit edgier than their counterparts throughout the United States because Boston was more progressive because of the university students. So I would discover artists like Brian Eno or New Order through the radio. I was at school in a little town just outside Boston in the early 90s, and I remember religiously listening to WBCN and KISS 108 too. BCN (laughs) was the station. It was. The program director when I was growing up was Oedipus, and he he had a radio show on Sunday nights called Nocturnal Emissions, and I used to tape that and play it back and try to find those bands. One of the radio shows that I started producing in the early 90s was a commercial radio show for the new alternative rock format. And it was called New Music Exclusives. And Oedipus became the host. I mean, I wrote the scripts and produced the show and he was the host. So I ended up getting to work with him many years later. But he really kind of affected my musical taste. How about some of the bands that you got to interview in those early days, particularly in New York? You mentioned Nirvana. Did you actually get to interview Kurt? Yeah, I interviewed the whole band. On college radio, we supported everything that came out in Sub Pop. This is the late 80s, of course. And we played Bleach, so I was very aware of their music. And then when I started producing these syndicated shows about 1991, I remember getting the advanced cassette of Nevermind. And all of my friends in the industry, when we got this advanced cassette, you couldn't stop talking about it. We all knew this was going to be huge. Of course, there was still that debate at that time. Oh, indie bands signing to major labels. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Of course, there was always that debate, but everyone was blown away by this album that was coming out. So I went to go see them at the Marquee in New York. It was their last small gig in New York. And it was on the weekend. And it was a few days before Nevermind even came out. I had them down to the studio that I was operating out of, and they came over on the weekend. And it was all three of them. I have to say that Dave and Chris were the most friendly and gregarious. They spoke at length, answered every question that I had. Sadly, Kurt was a bit out of it and a bit bored, I think. It wasn't a great interview with him in any way, but he was there. And I was just thankful to kind of get them into the studio, quite honestly. And Dave and Chris couldn't have been nicer. It was really interesting to see how that album 
really blew up and kind of changed the course, not only of music, but of radio in the United States, because it was after that album was released and the success that it had where the alternative rock format became a commercial radio format. Were you into dance music at the same time? Yes, because I had started going to all these clubs. So it was kind of like my daytime life was indie rock. I was also interviewing a lot of hip hop artists and even some reggae artists, dancehall artists. And then my nighttime and weekends were dance music. I was working for a friend of mine. He was a record dealer and I was sorting through his record collection and he would pay me in records. And then I started DJing. And it was very interesting to me to see this kind of fusion that was coming out of the UK. I was interviewing a load of bands. I interviewed Primal Scream when Screamadelica came out. I interviewed bands like The Shaman, The Orb, Orbital, even Richard James, Aphex Twin. I was really trying to promote this music throughout the United States through these radio shows that I was producing. But I really kind of loved how both of my passions of indie rock and dance music were really fusing together in such an interesting way here in the UK. We didn't really have that as much in the US at that time. It was still two very distinct things. Of course, dance music in the US at that time, too, is also led by African-Americans and, and Latinos. So it wasn't as much a white form of music. But it was really lovely to have access to this kind of vast tapestry of music all at one time. How was being a woman trying to make your way in a male-dominated world? Well, you know, one thing, I started in radio and there were examples of women on the radio. So starting on radio to me, because I was so young, I didn't even think about it. It was just kind of happened. Then the next job that I had at the record shop, I was brought in to work at the till where all the females worked at the till and all the guys were on the floor helping customers. But once they found out how much I knew, I ended up going out on the floor and helping customers and then managing. And, you know, at W1YU, I was the first female program director, but I kind of was just doing it and not really thinking about it. When I actually started DJing for events and venues and in live situations, that's where it really not became an issue, but became kind of a topic, a talking point. I would be DJing at a party and a woman would come up to me and said, I never even considered being a DJ. Wow, you've just inspired me. And I didn't really think about it that much at the time. It was only when I started getting kind of better and more well-known where certain things would happen to remind me. And that could be the security not letting me into a gig. I was opening up for Josh Wink and Laurent Garnier in the 1990s. And the security guy said, Cosmo's not a girl and wouldn't let me in. And I, <laughs> But I did go through. I said, arrest me if you want. <laughs> <laughs> or people would call up. I had a live mix show on W1YU in the 90s called Club 89. And I'd be mixing and hosting and speaking on the mic and answering the phones. And someone would call up and say, tell the DJ he's doing a good job. It's not like it was a bad thing that that person said that or necessarily even sexist. It was just how it kind of was in general. And when I would say, hey, actually, it's me DJing, we would have a good laugh. There have been challenges. There continues to be challenges. You know, you look at lineups and how male dominated they are, or just there's basically a lot of overlooking in my career. But, you know, at the same time, there were a lot of great opportunities as well. And I've had a lot of incredible people who have helped me. And so whatever I've gone through has made me who I am today. And yeah, it's definitely changing too, which is great. When did you move to the UK? 
I moved to the UK around Valentine's Day in 1999, and the night before was my final going away party at David Mancuso's Loft, where I had to actually musically host and play the records for my own going away. But that was the last thing that I did, and the following day I moved over here. And what did you do when you arrived in London? Well, first, I actually got a manager pretty quickly. Francois K really helped me out. His Italian booking agency had asked him about new talent, and he said he mentioned me, and they were based here in London. I went to meet them, and one of the women who worked there, Ornella, she said, I'd like to manage you as well. So I started DJing a lot um, internationally, especially throughout Europe. And I got quite a few residencies here in the UK, including my first one at 333 for a night called Denim. So I started DJing a lot. I also was producing music. I had a record that came out on Playhouse. And then relatively soon after, I started my own label with a friend called Bitches Brew. I was also co-producing the Loft compilations with David for Newphonic Records. So that took up a lot of my time as well. And then for a few months, I actually moonlighted working over at Mr. Bongo, the record shop on Poland Street. So I did quite a few things in music, but I didn't have like a proper nine to five job. (laughs) And never have. (laughs) Okay, time for the first of your five picks now from 45 in this record box. All the questions are on 45 sleeves. So I'll dip into the box, Colleen. Okay. And you just say when and I'll pull one out. Okay, go ahead. Your first question from the box is, as a DJ, how much of what you do is instinct and how much is experience? Oh, that's a great question. I think you start with the instinct. Some people have a talent for communicating and expressing themselves through music. Some people also have a talent of reading people. And that's something that I think I'm pretty good at innately. You know, I can read a crowd. I can even feel a radio audience when I'm hosting a live radio show. So that would be innate talent. But the experience is invaluable. And I have to say, I think I'm better at everything that I do now in my 50s. I tell people that, hey, being in your 50s is great. (laughs) You know, and so I think the experience really shines through. I've been trying to kind of value my experience and also my gut feelings. So I would say 50-50. Do you remember your very first paid DJ gig? My first paid DJ gig was at a little bar called ST Bar in the East Village on East 11th Street between Avenues B and C. And I used to play there every Thursday. And I'd have to walk over with my milk crate of records. So I had to carry the milk crate through the East Village. And I think I got $50 and drinks. I would say that was pretty good then. That was pretty good, yeah. And also, actually, I learned to mix because at that time, I still didn't have two turntables at home. So I learned to mix in front of people, (laughs) for better or for worse. (laughs) And then turned it into a full-time career. That was never intentional, actually. I think that just kind of happened. I was doing, I've always done a lot of different things in music simultaneously, and that's the same through to today. You know, I DJ, but I also make music. I also uh, founded and run Classic Album Sundays, and I also do all of my radio stuff. So there's always a few different things going on, and I've always kind of been like that. 
tell me, how and when was Classic Album Sundays born? In October 2010, because I was just getting fed up with how people were listening to music at that time. It seemed like music was really becoming devalued with people's illegally downloading MP3s or having their only musical experience, only listening experience, listening to MP3s. And it seemed like people were not really sharing music much in a collective sense in terms of listening. And also their end experience of listening had to, you know, was, was again, listening to MP3s that were overly compressed and that only have like, I don't know what percentage of the actual total information of the music, very low resolution. So a lot of the music was actually missing. I was also thinking about albums and, you know, kind of how albums have soundtrack my life and how important they are and how important they are to an artist. And it's kind of like writing a novel and somebody only reading one chapter. And I'm not saying every single album is great beginning to end because they aren't, but there are so many that are. And I think if you love an artist, at least giving one listen to the entire album is probably something you should do if you really, really champion an artist. So I started it really as a, a little album listening session at my friend's pub here in London. And a journalist came along to the first one, Kate Mossman. She was writing for The Word. And she wrote a great feature on it, our album clubs, the new book clubs. And then the BBC saw that and they ended up doing a whole feature on BBC Breakfast. So it just, again, it wasn't something that I intended to do and to create an entire platform that has satellites throughout the world and that hosts events with the British Library and Royal Albert Hall and things like that. And it was really just, I think this should happen. Nobody else is doing it, so I'll do it. So I brought my audiophile sound system in. We, I would play an album from beginning to end, no talking. I would tell the story behind it and just give people an immersive album experience. And people you know, found the experience transformational. Do you have a favorite album of all time? Oh, I knew you were going to ask that. It changes, but I'll give you some of them that are just favorites that are always will be favorites in no particular order. And they're favorites for many people as well. They're not very obscure. Astral Weeks by Van Morrison is one of my favorites. It always will be, as is What's Going On by Marvin Gaye, as is, oh gosh, let's see, um, Inner Visions. Or maybe songs in the key of life, Stevie Wonder, David Bowie. There's so many, but I'll just go with Hunky Dory for now. I guess those are all around a certain era, late 60s to early 70s. So it's probably around the time, you know, those are the albums that were playing when I was growing up. So I expect they have quite a huge kind of significance in my musical kind of growth and development. Another one that I really love that actually is a bit more obscure, but is one of my favorite After Hours albums of all time is Black Uhuru Dub Factor. Albums that, uh, for the most part, uh, I guess have been with you through all of your life. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of great albums too. Like when I first discovered, I was really getting into house music. Mr. Finger's Introduction was just my favorite album that I had on repeat. I could say that also around that era, which was a, a big time for me, Screamadelica, massive album for me. There was a lot of great albums. So I think about, gosh, Blue Lines, <laughs> Soul to Soul, Club Classics, Volume 1. These are all albums that I really, really lived with. Okay, killing back into the box for your second question now. You say when? Go ahead. 
Where is the home of clubbing and club culture? Oh my goodness. I'm going to have to say New York and I'm going to have to say it's my friend David Mancuso's parties. He started throwing parties in the mid to late 60s, around the time that I was born, actually, and then started to regularly throw a rent party starting on the 14th of February, 1970, a party called Love Saves a Day, which then became known as a loft because it was in his loft at 647 Broadway. And so many people were inspired to then start their own parties. David's party was private. It was for members, but not a membership that was charged for like other clubs that came along afterwards in its wake, like the Paradise Garage. But it was a place that people went to specifically dance and to make new friends as you would at a party. And he put the focus on the music in terms of with his sound system and with the music that he played. And he put the focus on the actual act of dancing. And that led to so many other people doing a similar kind of thing. There was the 10th floor, there was the gallery, even Studio 54, Carmen D'Alessio, who was, she used to go to the loft. She was the first kind of promoter over at Studio 54, which was kind of the antithesis of the loft parties, which were downtown and quite hippie and open to anybody. In fact, David was very interested in civil rights, women's liberation, gay liberation, and economic parity. So it was a much more diverse group of people that came to the loft parties. It wasn't a particular kind of night, but it did inspire all the clubs that kind of came out of it, including the Paradise Garage. You know, Larry Levan used to attend David's parties all the time. In fact, he called it his home. And yeah, Frankie Knuckles went there before he went to Chicago. So I'd have to say it was my friend David's parties in New York. How to DJ with Chris Hawkins. Still to come. It just pops into my head and sometimes I literally just turn around, randomly reach into my record bag and that record's sitting there in my hand. That really was the life-changing moment that said, hey, I also want to discover this area of music. Get back into the box. A third question. You say when? Please go ahead. Okay, Colleen, this one is, when have you felt euphoric? Oh my gosh. I feel euphoric. There's two times I can think of and it happens quite a bit, actually. One is when I'm DJing or musically hosting a party and the records present themselves. I don't have to think about what record is next. It just pops into my head. And sometimes I literally just turn around, randomly reach into my record back and that record's sitting there in my hand. And it's this really strange relationship. There's like no ego and it's completely organic and not intellectual at all. The other side is dancing. When I'm dancing to somebody else playing records and I just can lose myself. I can really lose myself in music. I should say another one too is actually listening to albums. Uh, When you listen to an album on a great system and you're not doing anything else, you're not on your phone, you're not opening your eyes and looking at things, you're just completely immersed in the music that can present euphoric moments as well. Question four next. So let me dip into the box and you just say when. Please go ahead. (laughs) Uh, Now, you may have just answered this. Where are you happiest? On the decks or on the dance floor? Oh, it's pretty even. It just depends on who's playing the music if I'm on the dance floor. (laughs) But I have to be honest, it's both. 
I'm going to make a bit of a generalization here, and it might have to do more with my generation of female DJs, but we all started as dancers. All the women that I know that are, you know, my generation who are DJs, they started as dancers. They started dancing first. And I don't think that's necessarily the case with male DJs because I don't see many of them dancing very often, quite honestly. And I think maybe they also saw they had other role models who were men who were famous DJs. And that was something they aspired to. Whereas in my head, it never even was a clear aspiration. It just kind of happened. So, yeah, to answer your question, you know, it's a bit of both. How about playing or making music? Do you have a preference? Ooh, again, they both tick different boxes for me. It's not an either or situation. I have spent more of my time playing music. I started getting into producing music and writing music in 1998. My first release was on Suburban Records. And it's a song that I wrote and produced. And I learned a lot. I have since, I don't know how many originals and and remixes I've done. I don't know if it's about 30 in total. I did take a little bit of a break. Uh, from it because there were other things in my life, other aspects of my life got busier. Plus, I wasn't as inspired. But I got back into it with Roisin Murphy's Murphy's Law. When I heard that song, I thought, oh my gosh, I have an idea. And I think this song will be perfect. Plus, I love Roisin. And plus, Murphy's Law has my name all over it. So <laughs> I'm going to ask her, <laughs> you know, if, if we could, if I could do a remix. And she she said yes. And it just, it was just kind of the start of me getting back into remixing. But I have a little rule with myself now. Instead of just saying yes to everything, I really am very careful with what I say yes to. When I listen to the song, if I don't have an immediate idea, I don't do it. Because I have been in the studio in the past, kind of not almost like fighting with a song, like trying to figure out where it should go. For me, music making is about inspiration, whether it's original music or a remix. And if there is no kernel of inspiration that's right there, ready to come out, instead of fighting with it, I think it's just best to say no thank you. Good advice. (laughs) Which only comes with time and life experience, as you touched on earlier. Exactly. Exactly. Question five, your final one from the box. Say when, Kelly. Okay. When. Have you ever had a single life-changing moment? Oh, boy. Yeah, I think there's kind of two. Can I say two instead? Mm -hmm. One was getting my first transistor radio when I was seven years old. Christmas, I think it was 1976. And I ran upstairs, plugged it in. And the first song I heard was Silver Convention, Fly, Robin, Fly. And I became obsessed with the radio. So that was definitely a life-changing experience. And also going to my friend David's loft party for the first time in 91, 92. And hearing a sound system like that, hearing music played in that kind of way, uh, an emotive, psychedelic atmosphere uh, with beautiful dancing, that really was the life-changing moment that said, hey, I also want to discover this area of music and, and what can I discover here? And it was kind of the inspiration of me becoming a DJ of dance music. So I guess those two are, are huge ones. Uh, the other one I should say is my daughter being born. I mean, I'm a mom. So when you have a child, that is probably the most incredible life-changing experience of all. 
You've been so inspiring, Colleen. Oh. I've got one last question for you. <laughs> okay. Don't sound so surprised. <laughs> it's the end of the world and you have to play the last three records on Earth. What would those three records be? Oh, my gosh. I have to think about this. As by Stevie Wonder would be one. Um, I think I'd have to play... I know it's a terrible thing that the world would be ending, but you wouldn't want to reflect that musically because you want everybody to be in something of a positive kind of headspace. So it might just have to be all Stevie Wonder, to be honest. Um, I would say as Stevie Wonder, and I'm just drawing a blank now, you know, probably Astral Weeks, because Astral Weeks to me, the more I listen to it, for me, it's about the cycle of life. And how about Donny Hathaway, Someday We'll All Be Free? Wow. Yes. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you so much, Colleen Cosmo Murphy. Thank you, Chris. And that was How to DJ. How to DJ. Thanks for listening. Please remember to follow us wherever you get your podcast from. <laughs>